Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast, brought to you by the Lipscomb Pitts Breakfast Club. This show shares personal stories and insight from those who are giving back and making a difference, so we can learn and do the same. We cover life lessons, business advice, passion, and purpose. Now, here's our host, Jeremy Park. Welcome to the Changemakers Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Park. We're in for a rare treat when you talk about corporate philanthropy making change, not only individually, but corporately. Huge change. We have the Director of Communications and Community Relations and Customer Satisfaction with AutoZone, my good friend, Jenny Now, How are you doing, Jenny? I'm doing great, Jeremy. So I've known you for a long time, not only in your role at AutoZone, but even before that. And we'll talk a lot about um, the work that you've been doing here in the Memphis and Mid-South area, which is absolutely amazing, especially focused on mentoring and tutoring and the arts and so many different things. We'll cover that conversation later on. But uh, the fun of Changemakers is we get to know you personally. So we talk a lot about your philanthropy corporately all the time. We get to know you, Jenny, personally. So let's let's start with you as a child. I know born in the Washington area, Washington, D.C. area. Is that correct? And that then right. Wisconsin. So is it Scotty Land? I was born in uh, Milwaukee, so it's like I, I kind of remember the cheese curds and the uh, snow. And But anyway. Tell, tell us about you as a child. Where were you born, how you grew up, all that good stuff. Okay, so I was born in Washington, D.C., um, and our family moved to Nina, Wisconsin, uh, when I was about two and a half years old. Um, my mom had grown up in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, which was about 35 miles south. There's a big walleye festival and, there. And Yeah, and a lot of people know about the EAA, or the Experimental Aircraft Association fly-in that takes place each July. Big event. But um, obviously the biggest draw in the area is the Green Bay Packers, um, which live at Lambeau Field, about 45 miles north. So are you a Packers fan? Oh, yes. I would be betraying my roots if I said no. So I grew up there um, about two and a half months after, about three months after we moved. My world was rocked um, with the birth of my twin brothers, Ben and Steve, who are remarkable human beings and the greatest men on the planet next to PJ Colbow and Don Turner of course but um, no and I grew up in this idyllic little town Nina and E-E-N-A-H home of Kimberly Clark Corporation so if you look on the bottom of your Kleenex box or if you look at a manhole cover or a tree grate you will probably see Nina and um, it's a small town um, situated by a lake and a river and I grew up across the street from a big park and started biking to tennis lessons and um you know, drama classes. Um, the summer I turned eight years old. Um, we had a remarkable Parks and Rec program. So for a few bucks a summer, you could participate in just about any activity, sport, arts, what have you. And there was a beautiful art museum around the corner from my house where I started taking art classes and did everything from batiks to ceramics starting when I was probably six. Um, was very active in middle school and high school, kind of that, like, you know, overachiever, join every club kind of person. Did you run for student congress oh, and all that kind of stuff? yeah, student government president. Um, and, you know, played varsity tennis team and was in the school musicals and performance choir, uh, show choir. Like, I was a total gleek. And um, just stayed really busy and had a wonderful family and great friends, many who I still talk to um, and, and keep in touch with today. Thank you, Facebook. Makes things a little <laughs> bit easier in our crazy lives. But um, towards the end of high school, I was really eager to um, 
find a, you know a new home and and I was super into the college search I was also very eager to get away from the Wisconsin winters and uh because those into, are like eight months out of the year. That's oh. what my parents were from Fort Worth, Texas. And they're like, my mom finally told my dad, I can't handle eight months of snow. So either we move back to Texas or I'm moving back without you. <laughs> so we moved as a family. <laughs> yeah. Everybody jumped in the car. So I, and I think I had one too many um, early morning basketball practices in January where, you know, you wake up, it's pitch dark. You trudge literally through the snow from your parents' car to the gym, which, by the way, hadn't had the heat on since, you know, the night before at, say, 5. So it's frigid. Um, And then you go about your day. And, um, you know, it's not even light out until, you know, school starts at 8 o'clock. So I was looking for something different, um, looked across the country, but um, fell in love with Vanderbilt. And... um, love that it was a great school in a mid-sized city, um, that there was so much to do in the surrounding community. And so, um, you know, went there for four years, um, got plugged into everything from intramural sports to concert choir, um, a group called, um, uh, that was really kind of a performance music group um, called Original Cast. And then started getting into student government, um, thanks to a friend of mine and who talked me into it. Never thought I would do that at the college level, but ended up being student government vice president my senior year. And um, just active in a sorority and this and that. But I graduated with, a, um, with degrees in English and human and organizational development. Um, left college in the um, spring of 97, having no earthly idea what I wanted to do and coming back to Vanderbilt two months later with dreams of becoming a dean of students or a vice president of student affairs and starting my master's degree in higher education administration. I thought, hey, I want to help students like me and to really get plugged in. And I really saw the benefits of like active student involvement. So I did that for two years, started having some hesitation year two. like, is this what I really want to do? And um, But I had the fortune of doing internships at Middle Tennessee State, Vanderbilt. I uh, actually spent a summer a summer at Arizona State University. And hello, Tempe Summers. You say that's nice hot. Woo! I don't think I was ever fully hydrated for like three months. Well, you've gone from extreme to extreme, extreme cold <laughs> to extreme hot. No. And um, I graduated and actually moved to Memphis because my dream job was at the University of Memphis. And I had an opportunity to be the assistant coordinator of student activities. So I began um, overseeing all the student organizations. I supported the Greek system, student government. Three weeks after I moved to Memphis, my boss actually moved to another division. So I started overseeing the student activities council. Pretty daunting when half the students were actually older than me um, and really needed to um, be able to support and and coordinate a lot of their activities that was everything from concerts to you know week-long festivals but um, you know I began to question my career path and ultimately left after a year at U of M and really went through I'm just curious did did you have any sort of uh, touch points with Memphis prior to taking that job so in other words did you come out here and seen it or was it one of those where when you say dream job and all of a sudden you have this job and you move to Memphis and that's your first real step into Memphis? Yeah, I, um, I, I had like a friend of a friend who was already in Memphis, but really no, no other contacts, nothing else. It was just purely for the job. And what was your perception of Memphis at that point? 
I mean, I had I came with a blank slate. Yeah. And there were people who tried to talk me out of it and, you know, help me sort of understand the differences between Nashville and Memphis. And I just dismissed it because I thought, you know what, I'm going to a great school. I'm going to start this great career. And I was really impressed by the people that I'd met prior to accepting the job. Mm-hmm. So I was like, whatever. Like, I mean, I don't want it to be well, I think it's important because, you know, those that come from other places, because I'm, I'm, you know, the same where I didn't really have any sort of set. I, I knew barbecue and Elvis and, you know, obviously the main things, Home of the Blues, Birthplace of Rock and Roll, Beale Street, some of the basics. But I didn't come in with any sort of preconceived ideas. And, and mm-hmm. you come in then just – with, with eyes wide open wanting to make a difference. Yeah. And I think it really does set the tone for your trajectory and the impact you're able to make because you don't you don't have any sort of baggage when you come into the city. It's like, no, I come here because I want to come here and because right. I want to make a difference. Yeah, and you're not afraid of anything. Right. And you're not, you don't hesitate to do anything. You just kind of go all in. And one of the things I was charged with doing, doing was really building a volunteer program for students and uh, creating kind of a service learning platform, which was easier said than done, but that gave me an opportunity to create relationships with folks from MIFA, from the then Volunteer Center, which became Volunteer Mid-South, which is now Leadership Memphis. Um, Even people who, fast forward 10 years later, actually joined my staff were folks that I met in that very first year, and it just is funny the way that life, you know, carries you into different circles, into different relationships but I was able and Hands on Memphis um, was actually the first place where I volunteered and um, I had no idea I had no context for any of the organizations that would host projects so just because it was sort of easy um, and and very clear one of the first places I volunteered was the House of Muse which was a sort of cat kind of adoption center and and so forth but I was really allergic to cats and I knew this going in (laughs) like that you're a trooper I mean I could tell you stories about growing up with two cats but we were so devoted that we could never let them you know we could never give them up so I but I'd go volunteer you were always crying (laughs) I was just like sneezing but I would literally get back from my volunteer project I would immediately go to the washing machine just strip down, throw everything in there and as quickly as possible shower just to rid myself in my apartment of like any remnants of cat stuff. Um, but, but see, that should give people hope on both sides. <laughs> One, you don't really have to know anybody when you move to a city and you can all of a sudden create these relationships and do amazing things. And two is you can fight your fears and allergies and go into places and make a difference too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, it was such a random thing, but it was just a great place to put, cause I mean, you know, taking care of cats is pretty low impact. And um, I mean, allergies notwithstanding so but I you know just those were the types of things like I, I did and actually and one of the other cool things was that I because of where my office was located um, I actually befriended a bunch of the students who were involved with the International Student Association my first year so I, I got to meet this incredibly diverse group of people in my very first year where you had exchange students or um, you know grad students who are here from you know Turkey or from Belgium and then I was volunteering and then I had this really dynamic job where I was working with 
you know, students of all stripes um, and really helping them make the most of the resources at the university. But I, I just had this sort of feeling like this isn't really where I needed to be. I really wanted to be out there. I wanted to be more connected to the community. Didn't know how to do it. And this is kind of at the like tipping point to kind of drop off of the dot-com era. So after 365 days, I left. I moved to Denver thinking, don't ask, that's a whole other story too, but (laughs) it sounded really exciting and I think I was ready for a change of scenery. So I moved out there with no job, um, worked retail, which is extremely humbling. So you went from University of Memphis and launching programs, being very well connected to jumping off completely to a new city, not knowing anybody, not really having a job lined up, go out there and work retail. No. would some suffice it to say, say like a midlife crisis my family it was a total quarter life crisis <laughs> quarter life happened crisis, when i was exactly. 25 <laughs> but my and my family and my close friends are like what is jenny doing but the silver lining was that after um a couple of pretty harrowing months i had an opportunity to work um on contract with a small regional office for what was then coastal corporation Um, which is an energy company, but they had just merged with El Paso Corporation. And I was working with all these, you know, like natural gas traders and actually their western states lobbyists, just this random hodgepodge of people who are in the oil and gas industry, helping them transition through this merger. And they immediately saw that, you know, this wasn't just any temp. This was somebody that they really wanted to help. And they were wonderful mentors, and they were so willing to engage me in their meetings and sit in their calls and show up to their events and, you know, and, you know, talk our way through the evening on Thursday nights. Um, And it was just a great support system that I could have never expected to have or could have built on my own. But when the time came that I had a choice to stay, return, um, I ultimately decided to come back to Memphis. Um, and a big reason, admittedly, was that my then boyfriend, now husband, and father of my children was here, and I just had to give it a go. And I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see what. And we had can you do. met him when you were working at the University of Memphis? I did, okay. I did, and um, you know, and, and so the seed was planted in my very first year. But I felt like after that year, um, or seven months that I was away, let's give this a try. And I just had faith that something would work out career-wise in Memphis. So I moved back summer of of 2001, worked for a small nonprofit, Tennis Memphis, um, for several months and ran their summer tennis programs in the public parks, and then started to, you know, hear these ads on the radio. Um, you know, Memphis Grizzlies, moving to town, apply for jobs, grizzlies.com. And I was like, that's interesting. And it was actually my dad who sent me an email and said, I think they have community relations jobs. And he'd been hearing about me talk about corporate community relations for, at this point, probably two or three years. And I applied, and uh, not a single contact could be made. I was like, how do I network? How do I find somebody? Who works there? And everyone was Canadian, so there was Right, but I say that's a little bit more of a challenge because they're coming to town. There's not necessarily an established group here to find. No, the closest I ever got to networking, and for listeners, I'm like doing the little finger quotes. Uh, My, so PJ, my husband, so one of his friends had met the mascot while wakeboarding one weekend. He's like, I know the mascot. I'm like, I need to meet him. And That's you know. how it works in Memphis. <laughs> but he... I know the mascot, met him wakeboarding. <laughs> and actually never made that contact, but fortunately really 
connected with the then director of community investment and then you know the rest is history i joined the team in september of 2001 um was there for 12 seasons and had a i mean marvelous experience um it was so much more than i expected but i think that most um probably the most eye-opening um but probably the most um, fortunate part of it is that i was so hungry um i was so eager to just you know try everything and we had the most remarkably visionary generous ownership group that anyone in this business could ever expect to encounter and I mean, they put their money where their mouth is times, you know, add about seven or eight zeros. And they have continued to carry that vision because they saw the team is so much more than just, you know, entertainment. Right. They really saw it as a force to unite the community, um, to inspire engagement and um, to really improve the quality of life throughout our region. And I think it's clear that those goals have been accomplished. I want to jump back to that, but I want to go back before because many times you talk about, you know, you as a child growing up and being engaged, student co- uh, congress and government, um, you know, excelling on the tennis court, excelling in music and doing all these things. Usually that comes from pretty strong role models with your parents. Yeah. So describe your parents a little bit in terms of just some of the ways they either modeled that or did, did that sort of community service aspect come from them? My parents are the kindest, gentlest people you'll ever meet. They don't complain. They are open-minded. They are inclusive. They are sensitive. They are all these things that where everybody that's ever around them feels comfortable, feels welcome, um, and, and knows who they are and knows where my where they stand so it wasn't so much their act their action it was kind of their way of being and believing that you should be good and that you should be truthful and that you should be you know and and just help others in sort of the broadest sense um so and they made everything possible for my brothers and me. They, I never saw a barrier to doing anything. Um, They always encouraged me. They always, and it wasn't this like, you're awesome, you're awesome. It was never like that. It was just very, you know, if I wanted to try something, if I wanted to be involved with something, they enabled that. And um, there's just that level of support, knowing, you know, seeing my dad on the side of the tennis court or my mom, who was a voice major actually in college, um, you know, try, try again to get me to like breathe properly when I wanted to be like, whatever, I've got this, I know right. what I'm doing. And then I was hoarse like three days later. And, you know, the, that they were just always there for us. And my dad has sort of a calm and um, quiet demeanor about him. And my brothers and I call him Buddha because he is just... He's just so chill and doesn't get ruffled about anything. And um, my mom is just this, I mean, super energetic, talkative, like social person. And so I I just, I don't think I could have had a more um, loving family. And then I have these amazing brothers who were, I mean, 
are my best of friends now, but you know, we're now, pretty competitive. Where does everyone competitive. leave at this point? Pardon? Where does everyone live at this point? So my folks split time between Wisconsin and Arizona. Okay. Um, I have one brother who's in Atlanta with his family, and my other brother actually lives in Tunisia. <laughs> wow, okay. So, um, you know, we are all over the place. Right. And, um, and even, like, my husband's family, you know, is split up. His, his folks split time between Chattanooga and Minneapolis. Um, he's got a sister in Ohio. I mean, we're just kind of all over. And so I think because of that, we have just kind of dug in on, on our, our, our home here. And um, really have found great friendships, um, many that are actually just within our neighborhood that have grounded us and, um, you know, enabled us to continue to grow as a family and, and be involved and really make the most of this community. So let's jump back to your work with the Grizzlies, the Grizzlies Foundation, the Charitable Foundation. And you heavily involved with Team Up, which was and is an amazing opportunity to bring all of these mentors in the community together to match them with organizations that need mentors. That was a big part of, of your efforts is, is recruiting and training and developing mentors and mentorship programs, um, among other things. So when you look at your time with the Grizzlies and the Grizzlies Charitable Foundation, what stands out with you as a point of pride? When you look at, hey, my time there, these are either one thing, two things, three things that really make you proud to have accomplished. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot that I'm proud of. Um, probably two things that really stand out the most. Uh, when the foundation was first created, the board was interested in really taking a lead on mentoring. I had no idea what that meant. I was like, okay, mentoring, nodding head, direction. What does that mean? What do we, you know, like how, right. do, how does that manifest? And it took a while. And I've said before that, you know, we threw spaghetti on the walls a lot and a, there's a lot that didn't stick. There's a lot of things that never really built momentum. But it was when we started reaching beyond, you know, there, there wasn't a model in the NBA. There wasn't something that we could do in sports, but there were some other really cool, like, marketing campaigns. Then we began to look at other organizations that were really successful in mentoring. And um, my, one of my colleagues, his name's Dave Shapiro, at the time he ran the Massachusetts Mentoring Partnership, and they had just inked a deal with the Boston Red Sox. So I reached out to Dave on a whim. Um, we began talking over the phone. We'd have these like two hour phone conversations, like, you know, solving the world's problems and downloading on everything we knew about sports, youth development, mentoring, everything like that. And I mean, it was years after we first started, started talking on the phone and exchanging information that we actually met in person, um, of course, at Fenway. And then, um, and then even you know, finding organizations like Facing History and Ourselves and um, and then talking to folks in the league office and so forth to really begin to crystallize around a campaign, a message, and then even having local corporate sponsors like Duncan Williams who could were, were there when we needed them most to validate what we were doing and then not only lend their name but also their employees to serve as mentors. Smith and Nephew was another one. They were remarkable. But all of those things began to align, and then we really started to build a movement. And, um, you know, I, I look back, and, 
you know, being able to do that, but then also being able to sort of return the favor. Um, you know, years later, I ran the Boston Marathon, and the beneficiary was the Massachusetts Mentoring Partnership. Um, you know, it was a huge well, opportunity for me right. to be a charity runner at Boston, right? But then to know that I could raise $10,000 as a, at least a small thank you for the inspiration that we had from the Red Sox and, and the Mass Mentors was big. Um, the other thing is that I had just an awesome team. Um, and, you know, we covered about a 45-year age range. We had so many different life experiences. I literally had staff from New Jersey and from Southern California. And here we were all doing this um, to help Memphis. And we really worked well together. And um, a number of folks are still here. And, you know, it was it was to kind of have this, like, dynamic, high-energy, super enthusiastic and remarkably devoted group of people that not only work well together but just work well with so many different partners and we're able to carry that message so authentically that that's where we started to really get the participation and support from our fans and even more um, and, and even internally um, players and coaches and others who are saying like this is awesome this makes perfect sense for for our basketball team so let's talk about the role you're in now with AutoZone and a lot of the seeds that were planted with the work you did with the Grizzlies really carry over perfectly with AutoZone mm-hmm. in terms of the relationships, the, the, the interface with nonprofits, the work you're doing, the community building work. Give us one, you know, for starters, just a little bit of context. Describe your role with AutoZone, some of the work that you do. Sure. So as Director of Communications and Community Relations, I have one fit foot in the community, kind of facing outward, and then one foot internal, um, where I'm really um, responsible for messaging and information sharing and engagement within AutoZone. Um, so on the community relations side, um, what's exciting is that AutoZone has a remarkable legacy of giving back. Our founders are some of the most philanthropic individuals ever to like, walk the streets of Memphis. Um, and they're Peter still Formanek, making a difference. Yeah, and Pitt Hyde. And, you know, they started doing this before words like community relations and corporate social responsibility even existed. They just felt like this is the right, this is what you do, duh. And then um, we are very focused on serving Memphis. We have operations in 50 states. Um, we have about 450 stores in Mexico, eight in Brazil, and then we have affiliate companies and operations around the world and I think four continents. But I mean, the lion's share of our funding stays in Memphis, Tennessee. And we focus on everything from arts and culture to social services, education, and health and wellness. And really um, focused on where we can make the biggest impact so that the most people in Memphis benefit. Um, and really, really enjoy the opportunities to sort of bring different organizations together and facilitate collaboration so we can really optimize expertise and resources and, again, just, you know, make progress on these things. On the communication side, I mean, it's it's media relations, it's um, internal enterprise-wide communication. It's everything from, you know, policies to benefits to... Um, you know, just different drives to um, build well um, engagement. So it's kind of far-reaching. It's really exciting, and I have to say that the the the, the culture 
and the quality of people at AutoZone is just bar none, just remarkable. And I feel really fortunate to work with so many dedicated individuals, but more importantly, you know, aligned around serving customers and, you know, customers in the broadest interpretation. It's not just the guy who needs to buy a new set of wipers. I mean, this is anyone that you come into contact with, whether on the phone, on the street, or in the store. So it's a it's a really special place, and I'm very fortunate to be there. What would you say? Because I think AutoZone is, I mean, even in my opinion, you know, I've had moments where I'll be stranded out late at night and call an AutoZone store, and someone will come out to my uh, car, change out the battery, drive me back to the store so I can ultimately pay for it. But I mean, that, that's the kind of customer service we're talking about yeah. here that you don't find anywhere else. So. I think out there in the public, you already have this amazing reputation for customer service. But what's it like on your end, especially going from the the Grizzlies to then all of a sudden stepping inside where, I mean, many times with a big corporation, you have this prestige, you have this air, especially of giving back and making a difference. But now all of a sudden you get to step under the hood, so to speak, and you get to be a part of that engine, right? Right. So what, give us maybe one or two things that stand out to you where maybe things that the public needs to know, but definitely wouldn't know, but just kind of not necessarily secrets, but just cool things under the hood. Once you got involved with the team, Mm -hmm. these are things that really stand out to you that say, wow, this really is what makes AutoZone a special place to work. This is something that maybe I didn't expect coming in, but all of a sudden now it makes me really appreciate the job that I have, but the impact that I can make. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's hard to narrow it down because there's so many unique things. One of the things that's really powerful is that every meeting that we have, I should say every meeting, every meeting with at least say 10 people, um, will begin with our cheer and pledge, but which is really powerful and reminds all of us of you know, really where we need to focus our time and energy. But then we also have an extra miler story, which is a story about another auto zoner who's gone the extra mile, who's really gone gone above and beyond to help a customer. And those extra miler stories not only remind you of like, okay, what is the business we're in? And the business we're in is selling parts. It's not community relations. It's not, you know, getting to, you know, parts from one place to another. I mean, all those things enable it but we have to really focus on where we are and um, and it just helps us really better understand how this manifests across a vast landscape um, the other thing is um, just the I, I think that we have such great leadership um, you know Bill Rhodes walks the walk constantly I mean he takes time to know people's names he is such an active community leader um, and has really led our organization to innovate so that we can say yes to every customer that walks through our doors or calls us on the phone or shops online. And it's really complicated and it's really expensive in order to do that because it's this massive machine that's everything from logistics to, you know, vendor partnerships in China. But all of those things are aligned around this idea that we by doing this, we will satisfy more customers, continue to grow, continue to have great jobs for people across the country and around the world. So I love being part of it. And as we kind of wrap up, we're going to do a rapid fire where it's, it's just kind of our fun, just yeah. off the, the kind of head questions. But um, give us one more thing, you know, specific to AutoZone. You yourself, you do. we do a lot of seminars and workshops on corporate philanthropy and just you know, the, the changing, the trends, the models, 
you yourself have gone through a pretty uh, extensive amount of innovation on the side of being able to allow nonprofits to interface with AutoZone and to um, you know grant requests, all all these types of interface things. I mean, you've really revamped all of that, but. Give me maybe one thing in your opinion, because we talk about it often, but just when you talk about the trends and even storytelling and tying nonprofits to your story of selling auto parts, there's so many things that you give as tips out there all the time. Give me one tip that you think, especially for nonprofits, when you talk about them, and we'll keep this generic, but just interfacing with corporations, Mm -hmm. what's a tip based on your expertise for those that work in the nonprofit world to better interface with, with corporations? I would say, number one, communicate. Tell us what you do. Don't wait for the annual grant application. And number two, look at how you can better collaborate and find resources even among other nonprofits um, and, and, and really leverage each other's strengths. Everything that we're doing now is based on collaboration. In on the on the on the revenue producing side, on our customer service side, and in the community. And my absolute favorite part of my job is being able to bring the ideas and strengths of lots of different organizations and even uh, my fellow auto zoners to the table and say, let's make this happen. Let's build this and not have to worry about, you know, um, you know, leaving it to one organization, but really getting people around the table and, and hammering it out. And we've done that um, a lot. I'm really excited, actually, this summer we'll be um, hosting the f- um, first, a first-time set of STEM camps with the Memphis Library Foundation, the Cloud 901, and the West Tennessee STEM Hub. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's everyone being good listeners and saying, we can't do this alone, but together we can have a rockin' good program and really start to make an impact and support our business community and support young people throughout Shelby County. So this is where we do our rapid fire questions. So these are just short answers. It's, you know, me just throwing out random stuff and uh, whatever pops into my head. And it's just a fun answer on your end to uh, give us a little more insight into your world. So what's, what's a recent book you've read? Recent book I've read. Oh, what is the most recent book I've read? Um, I read South of Broad, Pat Conroy, favorite author, author of Prince of Tides. I love that book. I'm about to read it again, actually. It was that good. <laughs> nice. What's a recent movie you've watched? This well, is where we, we talk about kids and, yeah, I'm about to say Minions. <laughs> um, minions? Um, I don't know. Other than that's, that's probably the most recent new movie I've watched. That's how we tell Sad. those with young kids. It's always a cartoon. <laughs> I'm in the same boat, hey. Right. So what do you like to do to relax? Run. Um, I Running is my my jam, and I try to get out three or four times a week, and it is absolutely the best way for me to start my day. So it sets the tone. Favorite sport to watch, either mm. on TV or in person? Basketball. Absolutely. You get a little spoiled um, when you, but I will say that with two boys now playing baseball for the first time this spring, I actually really am beginning to enjoy watching baseball for the first time in my life. (laughs) There you go. Favorite place to go and visit to travel? Ooh. So, Nina, Wisconsin ranks up there because it's just home and it's beautiful and I love spending time in my parents house um but 30a um gulf coast there's nothing like it nice 
What about favorite, and you can list multiple, but um, a favorite restaurant here locally? Mm, gosh. Um, so I think that just based on the frequency of visits, the Majestic Grill, um, but as a, I don't know, I just had an awesome time at Hagen Hominy. I need to tell you about this story offline. Um, Hagen Hominy and Andrew Michael Kitchen. So good. Yeah. You can't throw it out there where I need to tell you about the story and then not really tell the story. Okay, we'll tell the, the story. Can I tell story. the story? Is there, the story. Time? Yes, okay, there time? Okay, so, kind listeners, Jeremy and a number of other Lipscomb and Pitts Breakfast Club colleagues and I, um, and our, joined by our spouses, went to see this exhibition tennis match at the um, Lander Center several weeks ago. Andy and Roddick, Jim Courier, McEnroe, Philippousis. So awesome. These were like you know, the loves of my life growing up playing competitive tennis. And um, amazing night. But we didn't eat dinner there because we are at the Lander Center, right? right? And we weren't doing hot dogs and warm pretzels for dinner. So um, the Grizzlies are playing in a playoff game. Game time was 8.30, and we thought there's got to be a place where we can watch the game other than, like, a smoky sports bar. So I Google. Actually, I think I I went on the I Love Memphis blog, and I was like, places to watch a Grizzlies game. And I thought there's got to be an option that's not in downtown Memphis. And lo and behold, Hog and Hominy. And I thought, let's go there because we live out east, and so I thought it's relatively close to home. So here we pull in at, I don't know, 10 o'clock p.m. on a Friday night in East Memphis. Usually everything's shut down by then. And it's hopping. There's tons of people. They've got... TVs on, you know, they've got like a legit menu. This is more than just bar food and then wine list and everything. And then there's still people coming in after us to watch the ball game. It was awesome. And I thought, this is, this is my new favorite spot that you can actually like have a, like a real dinner. It's late night. You don't feel like you're keeping the kitchen crew up late and um, still like enjoy the company. It was awesome. Well, see, there you go. And it's so not even go. a paid endorsement. Jeez, man. <laughs> You start going out to some paid endorsements, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's go back to the last couple of rapid-fire questions. Um, Favorite place to eat outside of Memphis? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, Especially, like, in your hometown, what's a favorite place? So if we ever go to Nina, Wisconsin, we'll know where to eat. Which Fond du Lac, by the way, has some pretty crazy places. I mean, you've got, like karaoke bars that are amazing you've got you know, spent some time in Fond du Lac with a wedding there was I just have this fond memory of um a hotel restaurant it's down the street it's in it's in Nina it's on Wisconsin Avenue it used to be called the Valley Inn now it's called like the Holiday Inn Riverwalk or something really corporate and they had a Friday night fish fry and they had beer battered haddock that I must have had a gazillion times growing up because we're Catholic and we would, that's what we did on Lent. And, um, but it was like this crazy, like crispy, buttery, ha- I'm sorry, no health benefit in this fish, but Is it was that why so you decided to start awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so keep running. Out, right? <laughs> you know, and I mean, it was just, it was fantastic and so I just have fond memories of Friday night fish fries and it's funny how many people who move to Memphis from the Midwest um, anywhere you know Ohio sweep to like Wisconsin Minnesota and there's just not supper clubs and Friday night fish fries and that is you know I don't know maybe there's a there's a there's a market there um, for a future Memphis restaurant (laughs) there we go got some good ideas on the table here all right so uh, favorite quote or saying 
Um, I really, I love that there's like a Chinese proverb that says like the road of a thousand miles begins with one step. And what's funny about that is that I just sort of arbitrarily chose that as like my senior quote in my high school yearbook. But as a runner, as an endurance runner, and as someone who sort of started things from the very beginning um, in a number of iterations of my career, I, I, it's hard to think of anything more meaningful that shows that, you know, you, you got to start somewhere. You got to, you know, just go for it, but have the endurance to carry it through. And last question. What do you hope your impact, your legacy is here, especially on the Mid-South? Mm, I think it's too early to say. I mean, you know, I had this incredible opportunity to be part of the Grizzlies when it just landed. And I had a remarkable experience. I am part of a remarkable organization, AutoZone, you know, that is growing and incredibly successful. But I would like to think that the best is yet to come. And the mark that I leave, um, the biggest mark, has yet to be discovered and created and cultivated. You're still taking those steps. That's right. Many nice. more steps to go. Well, I think for those listening, I mean, really amazing storyline when you look at um, moving around, coming to, to Memphis, especially by way of, of Vanderbilt and Nashville, coming in with open eyes and, and jumping in feet first and the difference that you've already made, the impact you've made, and, and really how you continue to lead the way. You are a change maker. You're doing amazing things here in the Mid-South and really not just here in the Mid-South. I mean, you're working around the nation with many of the collaborations and, and projects and partnerships. So greatly appreciate all you do and for coming on Changemakers Podcast to share your story. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Jerry. listening to the Changemakers podcast. To learn more about our guests and to share your story of leading by example and creating change, visit us online at thelpbc.com. Connect with us online using at thelpbc or follow the conversation using the hashtag Changemakers. Now think big, start small, and act now. Be a Changemaker.